Hello and welcome to the Winners Never Quit podcast. Start your week the right way with a laugh and a dose of motivation. Listen to the stories of our guests, learn from their experiences and how they have built a winner's mindset. Hosted by myself, Jack Jarvis. And if you could like, follow or subscribe to the podcast, I would really, really appreciate it. Now today, ladies and gentlemen, is a real treat and a first for the Winners Never Quit podcast, as I'm not interviewing interviewing one person, I'm interviewing two people, Frenchie and Paul Jacobs. Now, they've got an incredible story, they've got a massive challenge coming up, and I cannot wait to hear more about it. So boys, how are we doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, good. Thank you, uh, thank you for driving all the way. You've come from Brighton, haven't you, this morning? Paul has, yeah. Paul, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm halfway, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Now, you two are ex-servicemen um, in the British Army, and you'll come together to do an amazing, amazing challenge. So, Paul, do you want to start with what this challenge is and tell the people uh, what you've got coming up? Well, I've just come back from doing Everest Base Camp, first British Warbline to do Everest Base Camp, followed by um, just doing the London Marathon for the third time. And then uh, I ended up bumping into Frenchie uh, in a very famous road in London. I think it's uh, Downing Street at a summer <laughs> event. Um, uh, got chatting to him and uh, basically my dream is to be the first British warbline to summit Everest. And there's a few challenges before that. And I'll let Frenchie explain what. Yeah, because it's not just Everest, it's Frenchie. Um, you'll probably put a little bit more meat on the bones. So go on, uh, uh, if you don't mind yes. filling us in. So you've uh, you've got something called the seven summits, which are the seven highest mountains on the seven continents. Um, but we've added a couple of extra onto that to to be able to building up the training and everything else. So we're actually going for ten summits, um, highest summits in different places. So starting with um, a local one, Mount Snowdon, and the reason we're we're doing that is is to try and get more people involved, so people can come along and join us for the day. It'd be the 14th October. No Great s- plug there, mate. Get that <laughs> <Yeah>. in early. <laughs> no, no signing up or anything. Just just turn up and uh, and be a part of the start of the journey for with with Paul. And then um, from there we go to Mount Tubgul, which is the highest mountain in North Africa. Uh, and then sort of carrying on. So Kosciuszko in Australia, uh, and Concagua in Argentina. Uh, so South America, uh, Denali in North America. Um, then. Mount Elbrus is the highest mountain in Europe, but that's in Russia, um, and there's something going on with <laughs> Russia at the minute. So <laughs> two ex two ex squaddies <laughs> getting a visa for Russia, mate. Let yeah. me know how that one goes. <laughs> so that that's closed at a minute, but these these things always happen around the world. Mountains mm. things close and and then reopen again, um, and uh, you know hopefully peace will will come to Ukraine soon, and then the mountain will reopen shortly afterwards. Um, but we're also going to do Mont Blanc, which is the highest mountain in in Western Australia. Yeah, Australia, Western Europe. Right, that's a great straight <laughs> so, away. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it's it's great to do Mont Blanc anyway. It's quite a technical mountain, even yeah. though it's not not that high in compared to some of the others. It, it's it's like, no joke. Like people no. die on that every year on a summit. I, I've been up it before, uh, quite a few years ago, and it, yeah, it's quite a cheeky mountain it's also the birthplace of mountaineering so mm. it's a great one to to do early on in our in, in Paul's journey um and then uh, going all the way Mount Vincent in in Antarctica and and then finishing with uh with Mount Everest in Asia so um it's a we've got a four-year plan to get to get these mountains all all done um but it's uh yeah we think it's 
it's definitely achievable. It's gonna be it's gonna be hard work. Along yeah, the way, I, I definitely think it's achievable, boys. But it's a big <laughs> it's a big challenge, isn't it? Mate? I mean, you know, this would be tough for anyone. But Paul, like you said, you know, you're you're blind, mate. Let's <laughs> let's call it how it is. So, where did where did the idea for this challenge come from, mate? Lying in my hospital bed back in 2009. This weekend just gone. 20th of August was 14 years that I'm complete blind. Um, lost my sight in Afghanistan. But when I was lying in my bed, the hospital bed at Selly Oak, which isn't there no more, it was something inside me that I just I had to keep pushing myself. And I never got to push myself in the military to the standard that I wanted to, or I believe I could reach. So now I have to push myself as the blind man. So I don't just want to be a blind man. I want to be the blind man. You said you, um, you've always wanted to push yourself, mm. right? Do you mind um, sort of running, taking us back? So your childhood, where did that come from, that sort of drive and desire to be better, to be to want more well I'm an orphan so I suppose it comes from there bouncing around different homes and picking up different skills off of different people and different adults and then um, like most or some I got myself into a bit of bother and I see an opportunity and that only opportunity either prison or to go to the army so I joined the army and uh, yeah it wasn't a very long career it was a very short career 2007 to 2012 I was injured at the end of 2009 on Herrick 10 um, after doing Nor- uh, being based in Northern Ireland. And then uh, from 2010, I've just thrown myself into all these different events, climbing, running, cycling, swimming, boxing. You said you got yourself into a bit of trouble. So how old were you when you joined the army? I was 17 and a half. Did it give you that sort of direction, that focus in life? It gave me that security that I had, I suppose, I'd already had from the children's homes and foster homes. There was that safety net. But once I'd left the system, there was no safety net. So I was run free, run wild. So um, what made you pick the rifles? I think they picked me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only ones who'd take you, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm now part of the trifles, mate. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was... Uh, I, I just... There wasn't any... I didn't know anything about the army. It was just, yeah, I want to join and... I didn't want to go to prison. Basically. <laughs> basically. My brother. So th- there's a story about prison as well. So my brother at 16 had died in prison. Fucking Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I understood about that, and I understood about the streets, and yeah, different things on in in Brixton. And yeah, growing up as a lad, as a little scally. Basically. Um, <laughs> so, how long were you in the army before you went to Afghanistan, mate? Two thousand and seven to two thousand and nine. So literally, just a very short period of time. Mm. But yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed the blokes and. Um, that sounded wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mate, it's 2023, mate. You could, whatever you're into, it's not, I'm not bothered. So you've been in the army, mate, two years. Mm. Um, were you excited to go to Afghan? Oh, 100%. Because mm. it was all through depot. It was all through depot. The build up to it and everything. And um, yeah, I just, oh, like anyone, that's what you join up for, isn't it? Mm. It's to go on tour. That's the whole point of joining the infantry and that mindset and the propaganda that's pumped into us all. As young soldiers be the best and all that, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, it's obviously rubbed off, mate, because like you said, you lay in that hospital bed quite severely injured and still you were thinking about, right, I'm going to summit the 10 highest peaks, some of the highest peaks in the world. Well, within six months of being injured, I'd gone up Kilimanjaro. Mm. So, yeah, I've been put in a coma and then waking up and then being able to walk and talk and I ain't never shut up. And then, uh, yeah, doing the London Marathon and Kilimanjaro and... Doing everything backwards, really, a triathlon, half marathon to 5k. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be the other way around. Yeah, it is, mate. It is, yeah. That's what happens when you go to Ireland. So, mate, do you mind talking about that first tour? How did you find it as a 
You would have been what, 19, 20 year old? I was 19, turned 20 when I was out there, yeah. Um, all I can remember is when you, when you step off the hooks, it's all very exciting when you, when the build up to it, the training, putting your combats on, going from green combats to desert combats, there's that excitement, the build up, that little bit of pressure, the screws tightening as time gets by. Then you go on your last weekend home or wherever home is, do what you've got to do and, uh, yeah, and now you're sitting at the airport and you're waiting and, yeah, boom, you're on that Hercules and you land at Bastion. It's yeah, boom, no pun intended there, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, it's when you're looking around, you're in, you're in Camp Bastion, and you're looking at these fellas and they've got these bleak faces where you know they've seen, they've seen some real action and, I don't know, you just, they're tired, emotionally tired, but physically strong. And you're looking at them and you look in their uniforms and all scraggy and it's just, there's something about that. And I wanted to be a part of that and I wanted to make sure I was part of what they had gone through. And yeah, I suppose when you're in depot, you, they always talk about the thousand yard stare and all that. And I really wanted to understand what it was truly like to be around someone who had that and and just be in and amongst it and be an infantryman and uh, do my bit, I suppose. And once I was out there in the fob, I suppose that's when... It, you get a bit tear jerky. It's a bit tiring. It's a bit, bit emotionally hard, because now you with all these all these fellas and you've got to rely on each other. And if one element of that falls apart, then the whole thing could fall apart. And uh, yeah, no, it was um, it was good. I enjoyed it. I really did enjoy it. I know a lot of blokes say that, but I thoroughly did enjoy it. I actually, towards the end of my tour, I actually signed on to do a back-to-back -to -back tour with my OC. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to stay out there. Because I had nothing to come back to Blighty for, so. Mate, that's fucking wild. It sounds, did you think you maybe, romant I know you said you enjoyed it, but it sounds a little bit like you might have romanticised it. Was there a point where you thought, when you got out there and you thought, fucking hell, this is real? Oh, 100%. 100%. So I'll give you, I was talking about this to somebody the other day. I went to school down in Ramsgate and I'm in Camp Bastion of all the places and I'm just loading up my weapon to get on the Chinook to fly us out to the FOB. And the fellow comes up and goes, hello, Jakey lad. And I'm the I went to school with. <laughs> Just like I'm loading up a weapon. I'm looking at him. I'm looking at my weapon. I'm looking at him. And I'm thinking, oh, God. <laughs> and then, yeah, that was the same time the uh, Chinook was being RPG'd. And that was a hell-raising moment. Mm. And, yeah. That must have been um, like being in the helo at mm. that point. Was that quite, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Did you feel quite helpless? You, you, you just, you just. If people are not shaking with that and, you know, you can hear the metal being tinged off all the shrapnel hitting the side of it and you're whatever thousands of feet up in the air in this chinook and part of you is begging to go back to Bastion where you're safe. You know what I mean? I don't want to go forward to the fob and you say, oh, please just go back there and I can get a pizza and a can of Coke and <laughs> Jack, I know. Yeah. But, you know, you, in that position, what do you do? You know what I mean? There's not a lot you can do, is there? Yeah. You can't pick up the weapon system and go forward for you. You're just, you're a sitting duck. But, you know, we went, um, carried on and went on to the next next position and you um actually were awarded the george medal weren't you for bravery yeah i'll just say you paul rolled his eyes there so he's probably been <laughs> asked about this a hundred times but would you mind telling us about the events of that day because it's um it's an amazing story okay thank you so the medal is an amazing achievement and i never thought i'd ever be in line for such a thing but at the same time 20th of august was only yesterday depends on when this pod goes out. And two men died that day in the name of their country. Sergeant Paul McAleese and Private Jonathan Young. And 
to me, that's what the medal represents. We was all in amongst it, and it was down to us three. And yeah, that's that's what it represents. Their 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 sacrifice for their country, Sergeant Paul McAleese and Private Jonathan Young. And uh, I'd rather them be here than a bit of tin on my chest. But you know, it is, it is and a lovely award, and I'm honoured, and that's why I try to do as much good as I can. An amazing way to look at it. It's not the first time I've heard stuff like that. I remember I was speaking to a friend and he said, yeah, don't go wrong. It's nice to be written up, but loads of lads did stuff that never mm. got written up. Mm, 100%. It was just just the way it happens, you know, sort of thing. And I think it was just being ginger, you know. Uh, <laughs> like the whole disability thing. And, you know, they have to do their bit. Yeah. So um, so you actually, you were Valor Man that day, weren't you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Lee Valor Man. So can you remember, like, what happened and... And how the day sort of panned out. Yeah, I can. Um, early dawn. Jonathan Young and his section were boosting us up because it was the last couple of weeks in um, that particular fob. Um, and the rifles were leaving. Because it was towards the end of your tour, wasn't it? Actually, well? two weeks. Fuck's sake. Two weeks, yeah. God, as if you'd not had enough bad luck, you know, being born ginger. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks before the end of your tour, mate. Jeez. I know. know. Um, Yeah, so that day, uh, Johnny Young was supposed to... He he was the lead scout, um, Ballon Man. And we'd gone down Pharmacy Road. I don't know if you know or ever heard of this road, but Pharmacy Road took the lives of many NATO soldiers. Very notorious part of singing. Um, And basically, Paul McAleese, Sergeant Paul McAleese, was QRF that day. I was second or third in in the patrol and somehow ended up second and they sent Johnny up um, an alleyway and to the right all I can visualize in my head to left there was a a wall that had been totally smashed and it was a good sort of peeping hole for our friends and then um, there was a probably an eight foot alleyway from what I can remember then there was a bit of dead ground that went up and then there was some sort of shadowy dead ground from what I can remember, and then there was a big open compound area where the walls had been smashed down, and pretty much in the middle of that was an old um, armoured JCB that had been pinged in the past. So another position where the enemy could hide from and ping. But anyway, they sent Johnny Young up this alleyway, and it was all rubbled, and I still don't understand it to this day why you'd have had to have gone up there, but it is what it is. We are where we are, and he's gone up there. And before I could get to him, he's gone bang. And I've caught part of the blast and I've ended up in a bit of a a ditch. And in between our lads covering me and aiming down Pharmacy Road as well as down the alleyway. But the way I landed, I'm sort of facing more the alleyway going up into the sort of the dead ground. And um, yeah, it just, it just sort of went on from there really. And then I'm trying to retrieve... Johnny Young, bring him back. Um, I tried to do my best that day and there was a bit of a contact and uh, the secondary device went off with um, Sergeant Paul McAleese and he was killed outright, basically. And then, uh, yeah, I was part of that injury. What injuries did you sustain? So, on the second blast, the shrapnel smashed through my nose and my right eye. It lodged in the brain, uh, cutting through my cheek, my throat. My arm, my leg, groin. Yeah. 
Not much left of me, is there? Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> All right, mate, we get it. You were injured. Oh, I believe Peter Badge. Can you remember being in the hospital in Afghanistan, or was it literally did you just wake up in back in Birmingham? So from what I've been told from the medics on the ground, and the, there was a contact and to scoop two dead blokes up and me, who they thought might have been dead as well. Because obviously the injuries that I sustained, you know, was more than a Hemkong and an FFD could square away. So there must have been life or something, but apparently they brought a JCB out and scooped me up and scooped up um, the lads as well to protect us from incoming. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've met up with my medic since then and amazing woman, fantastic. And I've got a lot of respect and love for her. Um, and apparently I can, I've got this vivid imagination. I don't know if I can remember waking up in a bed and being on a Herx. And I don't know if that's my head playing games with me or it actually happened, but I remember being like all tubed up and not being able to open my eyes, but hearing, yeah, knowing that I'm on a Herx and I could feel the propel propellers and, or the engine, if you know what I mean. Mm. Mm. Appreciate you sharing that. So mm. you, you're now back in Birmingham and you're going up Kilimanjaro a few months later, but what I want to know is, when you woke up, was it instantly you knew you had to do something to try and... I guess I'm guessing you raised money for charity when you climbed Kilimanjaro. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was it straight away or, or was there a moment where you fell down? Like, How did you get yourself back on the horse so, so quickly? I think being young, I was only 20 when I lost my sight and the fact that there were so many blokes from different regiments in Selyuk and at Headley Court that them two years of recovery... It sort of worked because there was no rank, there was no regiments. It was just, yeah, you've lost arms, you've lost your leg, you've lost your eyes. And everyone just sort of mingled in, helped each other and built each other up where when someone was down, there was somebody to take the mick and build them back up again. It just, it was like being back in the block and it just, I don't know, you took inspiration off other people and, you know, there's lots of other fantastic um, disabled veterans who have gone on to achieve all sorts of wonderful things, so... I took inspiration from them and I knew I had to do something and start somewhere. Did you ever feel that you were lucky? Not lucky, but blessed. <laughs> blessed, yeah. To be good looking. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't know who told you that. Um, what, and the reason I asked that question is because I was in that parachute accident not too long ago. And although, don't get me wrong, I'm like you, Paul, I do feel like I've been very unlucky. Mm. But I also feel I've been lucky not to be paralysed. 100%. Lucky to still be alive. And that's sort of what I meant by that. I didn't, you know, I don't want to downplay your injuries because you certainly aren't good looking anymore. What's wrong with your eyes? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm the one that's blind. <laughs> um, no, I feel blessed. Um, you know, you look at, am I better off than a triple amputee? Or am I worse off? You know, who, where do you define the line? You know, I can still, you know, run around and do everything I want to do. But the only thing, you know, I need assistance with certain little things. But those that are, trip on T. Some of them are stuck in their lecky wheelchairs and, you know, yeah. and it's easy to put weight on when you're in that situation because you've only got one arm to pump the heart and so I don't know, I don't know who's who's blessed and who's not, you yeah. know, I mean, what, what is a good situation. So two of my mates come back as triples. Um, so yeah, sometimes I just think I am lucky and I am blessed and it's just the card I've been dealt with and, you know, I've been given a second shot of life and to make something of it and I can change people's lives and inspire people and you know I've got a 12 year old son and I want nothing more to yeah to inspire him and be proud of me
No, I'm 100% sure he is, mate, and we'll talk more about the challenge. But Frenchie as well, uh, it's not just Paul that's here, so tell us about your time in the military because you did a few tours, had a few close scrapes, and now you're working for SAFA. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so it's, um, I joined before September 11th, so oh. before the, the Twin Towers. Sweat. Um, you had so to get that one in, did he, Paul? <laughs> well, so my, uh, my first tour was in Northern Ireland, um, in Londonderry, which was still an operational tour but it was definitely the the, the very tail end of, mm. of of northern ireland so there's still some things happening but my father did six tours in northern ireland including in a camp that i was in and so it's quite weird that 30 years later i stood in the same camp but it was a lot safer when i was there than w- when he was there uh, and i was there when the twin towers happened yeah um but i missed out on uh on the invasion of iraq instead went back for another tour of northern ireland um, then, then went to Iraq in 2005, um, and then on to, on to um, uh, Afghanistan in in 2006, and sort of uh, tours from there. So, the reason I sort of say it like that is, um, I think it's very different. I joined when there wasn't a lot going on, and I got mm. a slow build up into Iraq and Afghanistan. And when I was on my my third tour of Afghan, there was young 18 year olds that joined knowing they were going there and they were 18 like 18 when i was in northern ireland i was just a little uh little trouble so yeah yeah i'm sure anyone who was a little uh, scally in the culture guards at the time would tell you uh that i wasn't the the greatest of soldiers at that point i was more <laughs> interested in getting in trouble and, yeah and boozing and, and women <laughs> so, yeah um but uh well i say skinny there wasn't really women involved it was mainly mainly just alcohol and uh trouble uh-huh. but uh um but yeah, so I I had that sort of in. So by the time I was in Afghanistan, and um and I went to uh, got a platoon in in three para called the Guards Parachute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was lucky enough I got to go back and forward then between the the, the Paris and the Guards. So that's why I got some extra extra tours in. So a couple of sort of back to back ones with different regiments. Um, but that 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 meant that I had all that sort of experience before I was there, and it wasn't so much of a shock. It was like that that slow sort of intro. So mm. two thousand six. Um. The invasion of of Helmand was definitely a fruity tour. There wasn't IEDs at that point, but there was um, there was a, a lot of scrapping, uh, a lot more than on the the later tours, in as in terms of uh, firefights and calling in air and everything else, and uh, very different rules of engagement uh, as well uh, on that. I had tour. a friend, so he was in five nine, and he went on Herrick five, and he said the difference to when we went on Herrick nine was night and day. He said in two, on Herrick five we had CBA, like. Yeah. That was it, you know, and then you had all the offspray and all that. And he said, mate, you just need to be light on your feet because that is all you were doing, mate. Scrap. And he said it was wild. He said he, they, he compared it to the Wild West. So it's they, interesting. They, they did, because um, I had Osprey in Iraq in 2005. Mm. Uh, the, the the first Osprey, the one for those stupid collars and sleeves yeah, yeah, yeah. that I wear on top cover, um, just to make you extra hot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and they, they brought in the sort of the first, that that Osprey out to Afghan in in two thousand six and Stuart Tootle was command officer, and um, I wasn't there, but we got told he got a couple of guys to try it on, and then get over walls, read map stuff, and he was like, "Nah, send that home. We're not mm. blokes aren't wearing that." Uh, and we were, yeah, we were in CBA with a little plate over your heart, paralids that w- wouldn't stop a uh, stop anything, um, and so yeah, it was it was it was weird. And it, it, when I was talking to younger guys on later tours and. Yeah, the press would say we haven't got enough kit and everything else, and they'd be saying we haven't got enough kit. And I'm just saying we didn't have mini bees, we didn't have six hours, we didn't have 
plate carriers and big plates and uh, and all this stuff you know we've got a lot more now than we did only three years before um and, and in terms of Kazivax, um in we'd take casualties in 2006 and the raf wouldn't come and get them because the the threat level was too high in the helicopters mm. and we'd end up relying on the americans or someone else to come and get them so we'd have um wounded or even killed people who take 24 hours to be Kazivaked. And Herrick 11 was my last Afghan tour. And we'd have uh, triple MBTs who were on the operating table in Bastion in 20 minutes. Yeah. It was the the, the medical, uh, it's the one positive that tends to come out of these wars is that medical stuff moves on so much in, in those periods and then procedures and kit and equipment and everything else. So um, I'm not saying it was, it was safe on the later tours because then you had the IEDs. Yeah. But it was just so different, the, the comparison. And it it's a pretty short period of time. And I now look back, at the time, it seemed like ages between Herrick 4 and Herrick 11. But in so that's 2006 and 2009-10, stroke 10, Herrick 11 was a winter tour. Um, but that's not long at all. No. <laughs> but the, the, the kit, the, the tactics, the, the, the Taliban, everything it completely changed in, in, in that period. Um, and it's I can't tell you which ones are worst tour i know um because we had a lot more people uh, later the the amount of troops increased hugely in, in numbers um you know th- three power were on their own at the start and then we're bringing in people from uh i think it's the fusiliers and the gurkhas to to take over because we were getting sort of pinned down in, in fobs by political pressure i believe it was that command officer was getting made to put a company in Sangin and then he's down a company, put a company in Muscala and now we've only got reserve company and then Nauzad um, and Goresh, they were the, the four main hotspots uh, and Kajaki. Um, uh, well, it was not at that stage because oh. it, it was really, we were just, we had those sort of main hotspots and it, and it changed tour by tour because uh, I know we went into Goresh and there wasn't really much going on and we were like, oh, it's the safest place in Afghan. Uh, and then the Marines had a terrible time there, and they took over from us. And it it moved, and it changed. And anyone who was who was there involved in the tours, it completely changed um, from tour to tour. Where Taliban were increasing numbers in one area, or pressure, or trying to do something. They, you could look at them as a ragtag army and, and terrorists, and in some ways they were. But their commanders still had battle plans. Yeah. And uh, I I believe the start was a bit like we were soldiers. Um, they wanted to wipe out one of the camps, so Sangin or, or Muscala, um, overrun it, take everyone out, and then we would have left. And we 100% would have. If we lost 130 men in one place, political pressure, public pressure, oh, there's huge. no way we would have stayed. It's like, um, you know, Black Hawk Down. Yeah. And when you watch documentaries about that, and the boys said, we didn't want to leave after that. But you said the political pressure that comes with seeing US servicemen drag through the streets of Mogadishu. Yeah. So it would have been exactly the same if that ends up on... CNN, uh, Al Jazeera TV. Even more so at the start of a campaign. Oh, yeah, uh, it's easier then, isn't it? Because, yeah, well, there's less people there. We'll just get rid of them. Like, we'll bring yeah. them home. And it's that the, the public are then asking a question. They, they wake up, Black Hawk Down, great example. Mm. They woke up that morning. They didn't even know there were soldiers in Somalia. They never even heard of Somalia. Mm. Um, and, uh, and yet they're waking up and they're Googling where Somalia is and wondering why there's loads of dead Americans there. Yeah. And um, as well, you, you mentioned changing tac- tactics. And unfortunately, I never got to go to Afghanistan, but it's very funny speaking to you, Paul. I'm like, oh, unfortunately, I didn't get to go. But you said everything 
you join up, that's where you want to go. Mm-hmm. But I look at people like, so I've got to be careful what you wish for. That was your first tour. It could have been my first tour. So, and sorry, the point I was going to make about changing tactics was you, were you the year when they went to low metal content IEDs? Yeah. You know, you didn't stand a chance. You didn't, you don't stand a chance with that Valon. No. You know, picking up, trying to pick up carbon rods. But that showed the speed that that changed as well. So I came off Herrick 8 and then went back to the guards and were training for, for Herrick 11. And that's when the Valon would really come in. Barely seen it on Herrick 8. Unheard of on on Herrick 4 and um, and the young guys the young 18 year olds were just about to turn 18 were sort of looking to me as section commander done several tours and they were like oh we did it don't, don't worry about the ballet we won't be using that don't use that in Afghan don't worry about it and we got out to Afghan and I was completely wrong I'd only just left but the, the, the tour had moved on so much that I didn't know what I was talking about yeah. I was telling the guys and uh, and I think yeah uh, so I Herrick 11 was the tour after after Paul and mm. I was based in PB4, which uh, we took a, a lot of casualties. We lost five of our guys from our company. Um, and uh, I think it worked out. Was that the Rogue Policeman? No, no, that was the Grenadier Guards. Oh, Grenadier, yeah, that, okay. was on, that was on your tour, actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I was, they were all, all from IEDs, um, the, the guys who, uh, who were killed. Um, and obviously, for every killed person there's there's multi yeah there'd, there'd be at least three or four amputees and then um and then more with frag wounds gunshot wounds and stuff so, so works out from the the company that went out there you take away the people who never leave camp um then got about a hundred sort of bayonets to go out on the ground and i think we had five killed um and then about nine who were single to triple amputees uh, and then 36 others wounds of one variety or not so it worked out at almost a 50 percent chance of being killed or injured which then leads to the the, the black humor of the the soldiers of calling it a babaji leg lottery and uh, when people were shot they would be getting cheered onto <laughs> helicopters of like you've won the lottery you're going home with all your limbs and and things like that um obviously when they were shot but they were copious yeah, yeah. going on the helicopter and and uh yeah and it, it just it just showed how much it it sort of changed and we were saying the Valums they were just uh they were just something to keep you busy because yeah. they weren't finding anything yeah so uh um yeah it was just something to take your mind off the fact that those Valons they're great for finding conventional mines and and things like that and they are a good metal detector but when you're carbon rods uh they're such a low metal content that you know the boys didn't well it was like you said potluck really wasn't it I mean yeah Mate, fair play, got a big old set of gahunas, boys. So I'll, I'll take my hat off to you. Um, so tell us about how you two met, because you work for Safa now, um, Paul. Left the military. So yeah, tell us about that and how you two came to know each other. I don't work for Safa. No, no sorry, Frenchie, you work for Safa. God. Tell us about how you end up working for Safa. Yeah, so uh, well, I, I, after being mentally discharged by myself, I went into, I'd done anti-poaching in the army and had a big thing for, for Africa and the mm. wildlife, so... I went into working with safaris for for a while, which I got to do some uh, amazing things, but it wasn't a, a long-term mm. term thing. So I, I then decided I wanted to, to give back. I had a bit of a dark days of, of myself. Um, mental health sort of really took a spiral, and um, I, was, I was pretty close to, to ending it one day, and um, a friend of mine managed to talk me out of it and support my, my wife. Uh, she obviously saw what was happening called them up and it got me back into to running and that sort of led me back in the right direction and moved down to the to the coast got away from where we were 
and um and that's when I decided to wanted to work for for a military charity but there wasn't any it was covid was just hitting so I went and worked for a homeless charity and then when I had a chance that I moved over to to Safa and um honestly I'm saying this because my current employers but it's the best job I've I've had since yeah. in the army uh, I get to to, to tell all my war stories and uh, people have to listen whether yeah, they want yeah, to yeah. or not <laughs> and, uh, and I get to work with, with don't worry Frenchy I'll get you on the podcast by yourself and we <laughs> yeah. can just talk about all, all of your war stories <laughs> yeah. but it, it, it yeah it's just uh, it's having that sort of connection back in with the military it's funny I left the military and said I want to get as far away from it as possible because I'll be depressed being around the out edges mm. and not being involved but I think having that few years break and now sort of being back involved and being back with, with veterans. Um, uh, I want to help. I, I struggled and and there's people out there struggling who maybe weren't injured as bad as me or, or, or saw stuff as me. And then there's plenty that were injured far worse and saw far more than me. And I see I've got a chance. I've got a, quite a good skill set with, um, with project management and, and uh, building challenges. And it's given me a chance to, to put that into practice and for what I believe to be a, an amazing, amazing cause. You probably both know Johnny Mercer, um, the yes, MP yeah, for yeah. Plymouth. And what he says, it's not the charity third sector, it's not their responsibility to look after our veterans. If they've been sent somewhere to do a job and they've got injured, the government needs to do more. I've met him a couple of times, I agree. Yeah, I think he's really great. He was there the day we actually met each other. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I get that sort of statement quite a lot when I'm fundraising. People are like, well, the government should be doing this, shouldn't be down to charity. It's like, great. Get get the government to pay for it, yeah. Or if we're not needed, get rid of all the charities. Fantastic, cure cancer. Get rid of all the car- mm. cancer charities, but they're not at the minute, and they're needed, and and that's what it's there for. As soon as they're not needed, fantastic, close the charities down. No, but they are definitely a hundred percent. Um, and and yet you can argue all day long that the government should be paying for it, but if they're not, then then, then this is the only option, really. Um, and I think our country is we do it a lot more where charities are, are relied on um, because the public are just so much more supporting yeah. in, in that way. Um, and every people generally help charities that are close to them for, for one reason or another. Um, you know, if you your child's had leukemia, that's probably going to be, you're going to be very keen on that for your whole life if your mum's had cancer, things like that. And so a lot of the ver- veterans charities, the main support is people who were in the military or the family of, um, but I say a lot when I go go on talks, people think they've got no connection to the military, but the veterans are, are everywhere. And it, uh, you go in a room and you say, you know, if you're in the military, stand up. If you're in the reserve, stand up. If your children or your parents were, or your uncles, cousins, your work colleagues, everyone in the room would be stood up. And if, if it's a work colleague that sits two deaths down from you and they're suffering from PTSD that's going to affect your life because mm. they're going to be having outbursts it's going to be sort of traumatic for you as well and if it's a family member even more so uh, sadly the suicide rate is very high uh, at, at the moment and, and has been for years and that is it's it's obviously very sad for the for the veteran that that's committing suicide but, think but about it doesn't end with, with, with their them. friends their family it's exactly like I mean, you just children, said children growing up maybe not even remembering the parents or growing up with that huge trauma. And I'm, it's not blaming the person who's committed suicide, obviously. No, of course not, no. Massive depression, mental health issues. And they feel that the world is better off without them. They feel their children better off without them uh, at that moment. If they survive through it, 
uh, and I know a lot of people who have, they look back and think, I can't believe I nearly did it. I can't believe I, I was going to leave this and that. And, and no matter how bad things are, they, they do always get better. I know it's really cliche saying it, but it, it always does. And everyone I know who's been through it and survived always says it's, it's better. It, it always is. Um, and that, and that's, it is that ripple effect that, that can come from it. And it comes from a, a death on operations. It comes from, from suicide as well. Uh, of a friend down in Cornwall who was killed in, in Afghanistan and um, talking to his family recently, within a couple of years of him being killed, both his parents had, had they'd, they'd separated and then, and then died. One through um, drink a lot of alcohol and, and one generally believes through a broken heart that their youngest boy, the apple of their eye, and they, a lot of it's not understanding why, why we're there. And then I think with the with Afghanistan ending so badly and so openly in in the public, um, or two just over two years ago now, wasn't it? Um, that's that's had a huge effect on veterans, but the families of those left behind who gave everything out there, or you know, and those killed on on operations, but those that came back and then led to suicide or. Or, or still in depression now, and and their whole family's lives are turned upside down by that, and then they're seeing that on the on the TV. It's interesting, I and mean, I'd like to hear your opinion on it, Paul. So you were, you know, lost your sight, um, severely injured. Two of your friends died, and then to see the fall of Afghanistan back to the ta- Taliban. How did that make you feel? Because did it almost feel like you'd lost your sight for nothing? Or well, I'm still here, aren't I? Do you know what I mean? I still get to be with my son, I still get to be with my loved ones. Whereas those who haven't got their loved ones anymore, I think it's harder for them. I'm trying to see it from all different angles why. Um, But it does hurt. And I think that's why there are so many more. It hurts me as well. And I didn't even get deployed to Afghan, didn't lose anyone. So I can totally understand why you feel that way. um, I think... The world we're in now with so much more social media and we can see things and there's a lot more answers to things and lots more propaganda. I think, yeah, it's, um, I think that's the anger that we've got because it was just the way it was done, how it was done. Mm. We, um, they're prepared to, you know, take these young men, throw them over there and then when they're no good, just leave them to bear the brunt of the rest of their lives. You know what's what's the government done for me? <laughs> what you know? I, I didn't. You know? <laughs> yeah, I could go into that one all day long. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we talk about something a little bit more positive then? So you two meet at Ten Downing Street. Love at first sight. <laughs> I looked I, into his eyes. <laughs> did he lay it on you? Yeah. But he did I had to look up to him now? Unfortunately, <laughs> but that is the first and last time I do that to a guard para. Uh, <laughs> so what event was there at Ten Downing Street that day? It was the um, Armed Forces Day. It was like the PM's reception. Uh, PM wasn't there for this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who was who was the PM at, PM at the time? Uh, it's Rishi. He's, he's oh, now, Rishi. But, um, he was in. He was in Parliament asking. I can't remember what it was, but there was some tough questions that day. Oh, he was, was in there? Parliament. So, uh, as a lot of it was around families, it was. Uh, I think it was planned that he wasn't meant to be there, okay. but we we didn't realise. Um, but uh, Johnny Mercer was there, and um, and Rishi's wife um sorry i can't remember remember her name but th- those are the two hosting it yeah. and johnny's wife was there as well um 
so yeah there was a it was several military charities and a few people who worked for them and um others who are beneficiaries or fundraisers for them and stuff so it was my first time in 10 down Street. i was pretty start going there my invite must have got lost in the post though yeah that's understandable (laughs) less of that um (laughs) so yeah you meet and and who so did you have the idea paul because i'm just trying to get this because go on you paul's idea was was everest um, yeah and and that was one of the first things you spoke to me about and Um, then i said i've been in chat with a fellow called lou rudd I don't know if you've ever heard of Lou Ruddy. I thought you were going to say Louis Rolfe, and I was like, what are you talking to my little brother for, you weirdo? <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, Lou Rudd. Lou Rudd is um, ex-Special Forces. Uh, he um, he works for a company called Shackleton. Yeah, I have. I've heard of Shackleton. Yeah, so he does the South Pole. Him and his partner do South Pole expeditions, and he then started talking to me regarding, as we were doing Penny Fan a couple of weeks ago, about a fellow called Martin, Captain Martin Hewitt who was pinged in Afghanistan, he was pinged in his shoulder and he's uh, severely disabled in his, is it his right arm or his left arm? His right arm, yeah. His right arm. And uh, he's gone on to do all these amazing mountains and, you know, down to the South Pole, North Pole, do uh, St. Vincent in a woman's dress because that's what Paris do. <laughs> Big it up for the Paris. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, got talking to Martin and Frenchie served with Martin or they were in the same camp or something in there. Yeah, we've just built this little team around us now and it's just, I feel, I'm at that point in my life now where I want to throw throw everything into a really exciting next couple of years, just pursuing where I can leave my flag and plant my flag and be the first British war blind to be the first blind. Mm. And, you know, along the way I get to meet amazing people and inspire people and if it raise a few quid and help people along the way, then there's no harm in that, is there? Yeah, well, you've met an amazing person in me, if I say so myself. But you're a uh, Frenchie. You've done a few ultramarathons and that, so you come up with the original idea, Paul, we're going to do Everest, and then did you maybe think, hang on, Paul, we can do a little bit more here. Is that, is that how it came about? We started it, spinning the yarn, didn't we, and talking. and Yeah, there's... Um, I mean, Everest is... Is Everest... It, it's, it, it's the biggest mountain in the world. Yeah. It's not necessarily the most difficult but it's it's up there obviously it's one of the 14 um uh 18 meter peaks um and you can't take everest on without a lot of training a lot of a kit i mean you, you can if you pay enough money yeah. but then that's not safe and safety is is paramount at the, the first point that everything on this and all of the guides we're using we know that if we get told to turn around turn around and paul knows that that if uh if he's on everest and he's 200 meters from the peak they say mate, turn around you have to turn it's better around, to um climb it. another day mate as yeah, i say it. it's, a, yeah. it's a lot of money but you can get more yeah. you know yeah, yeah. Or, or you don't go up but at the end of the day paul's got a son mm-hmm. he's got a lot to live for um so the safety will always be there first but then it was like well if we're going to train for it let's there's no point you know we, you're off to uh, paul's off to chamonix in a, in a couple of months with 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 martin hewitt and the um adaptive grand slam guys um and that's going to be the start of the training, and then straight back into into Snowdon, and then the first mountain is Mount Tubgall, which is going to be a good challenge on itself. And uh, if if anyone hasn't done it, it's, a, it's the highest mountain in North Africa, um, and it's only an hour and a half from. Marrakech. If anyone hasn't done it, who do you think's <laughs> listening to this, Frenchie? I haven't uh, done it. <laughs> but it's, a, it's a great one to to start with. I, yeah. I did it a couple of a couple of months ago with with my wife, and it's um, 
it's a great challenge to start with. We decided to do it in, in winter. So there's then they've got the extra training and it won't just be Mount Tubical, which is the highest peak in North Africa. We're going up the second and third highest peaks uh, as well. So doing them in training to do the highest. So there'll be the three peaks, three highest peaks in the Atlas Mountains completed over uh, basically a long weekend for for that mountain, uh, for that for that one. Um, and then it's, uh, it's those building, building on. So not just doing them as quickly as as possible to get as much training and everything out of it and also trying to inspire people veterans obviously is going to be a a big part of what we do being uh, me being Safa and and both of us being veterans Mm. but it's not just it's not just veterans that want to inspire with with Paul's journey it's that you know anyone with a disability um, physical disability of course but the people who are scared to leave their house or or worried Mm. about doing anything are not saying get yourself up Everest yeah but um, I do a lot with with park run, uh, and my wife does a lot with park run. And you see the guys doing, the guys and girls doing couch to five k and things. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I love it, mate. It's, and it's getting people to set a target and go for it. And the amount of people I've met who had signed up to do a couch to five k and then a running Brighton Marathon or something. It's it, you know they they started a year ago and thinking they can't run five kilometers, which I know to people in the army seems. No, but, it's, it's not, but you're right, it's not about that. It's like my grandma goes to the gym and she goes to yoga and she says, oh, if I, if I don't use it, I'll lose it. And we went to the, we were at the gym together today, training separately. And uh, she goes, oh, I'll get embarrassed. you up? Yeah, she would. She's there, my big 100 kilo dumbbells. <laughs> not ideal. Um, but she was like, oh, no, I get, I get embarrassed. And I said, why? I think it's awesome. Like, don't compare yourself to me or anyone else. Just, Just go and run your own race. And yeah, everyone absolutely. else is their, their own Everest. So, yeah, no. I love that sort of attitude. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You've just got to be doing something. Yeah, um, Yeah. no, mate, I, I love you it. Just, you just never know where it's going to lead. It might lead to a bigger challenge, but it might it might add years onto your life. It it certainly will help with mental health. Running really saved me from my, my darkest days. And mm. being a, a an infantier, just idiotic, from signing up to a half marathon, I was signed up to a 250k ultra before leaving the sofa. Yeah, with, with, with my beer bag, going, well, just to, to do this. Yeah, I'll be able to do that. Sweet. Thing is, though, when your mates, and it's so true, you talk about inspiring people. When you know, I know people like Paul now and, and yourself. Just doing, like you said, you were like, right, with a beer belly, I'm doing an ultra marathon because my mate who's blind got blown up. And I've got if he can do a marathon, you know, I, I should be able to do an ultra marathon. And it's funny because, you know, we're all sat here, both of you got medically dis- discharged. And sometimes when I feel sorry about myself and my injury, I'm like, hang on. You know, when I, when I read Paul's write-up, and I'm like, ah, bloody hell, if he's doing all that and he's, you know, been through all that, like, I'm sure I can get up and go to the gym. And, and what, you're in a parachute accident yourself and drawing inspiration. So you've already inspired me, boys. So I appreciate that so much. And boys, we are running out of time, but I want to say I could speak to you too all morning because you've got a great great story but i'm gonna leave i just want to leave with one final question all right so if you could give some advice to someone you know that's struggling maybe going going through it what would be your advice uh, and we'll start with you frenchy so paul you've got <laughs> you've got a little bit of time to think of a good answer here mate uh I'd, I'd say sort of back yourself and take a punt on things at the end of the day we we're very lucky the country we live in and we've all got different backgrounds my, my upbringing was a lot easier than in paul's being a, a pad brat and uh, <laughs> comfortable comfortable upbringing but y- you think oh i might lose lose out going for this job for this adventure for this whatever 
but we never lose out, lose out. We're not we're not in a horn of Africa here. Yeah. We're in a very safe country. So just take a take a risk on things. If it doesn't work out, especially when you're young, you've got a, you've got a million more chances to do things. Yeah, no, love that, mate. You've got to take a punt. You've got to take some risks. Now, Paul, go on. What would your be a bit of advice be? Take the risk or lose the chance. Always follow your heart, follow your guts, and try and do the right thing and do the right thing by your family come out with a cropper there absolutely awesome boys thank you so much for coming down i really appreciate it and just finally tell us about the challenge that you've got coming up on the 14th of october yeah so this is the the start of the 10 peaks so uh so mount snowden and it's just there's no sign up there's no like fundraise tiger or anything just people just turn up uh either wave paul off at the start get a train up wave a minute at the top or preferably come walk a bit of us then you can say as in paul's words in four years time when you're seeing him on on the tv summit in Everest you can say I did the first mountain with him and it'd be great to be to get as many people as possible involved with the with the start of this journey boys absolutely love it um thank you so much and that is the end of today's episode guys if you enjoyed it please could you follow like and subscribe as it really helps grow the podcast thank you for listening